0: turn to the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 25 through 35. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 874 page 874, and we continue in our series, a short series, three weeks uh, in total, uh, looking at uh, a new direction, a new focus that the elders and staff have been working through and and contemplating. Uh, This started about uh, almost eight months ago, nine months ago, I guess, uh, at our staff retreat where we uh, began to look at uh, what the next 10 years of ministry is going to look like and what does our focus need to be um, you know, moving towards. And we came with this idea that uh, disciple-making is going to be our priority. It's going to be our focus. And uh, last week, we learned that uh, we need to be discovering disciples uh, through assimilation and through evangelism. We need to be uh, finding those disciples that God has called to be his followers, and, uh, and then we need to develop them. We're going to talk about this in greater detail this morning, what it means to develop disciples. And we're going to do that through a ministry of interaction, uh, instruction, an imitation, we'll talk again more about that. But then next week we're gonna talk about what it means to deploy disciples. That is what it means to, as we grow them, as we as we make uh, disciples, uh, to send them out. Send them out to do ministry close to home. Uh, many of you uh, that were uh, uh, not here in the first service were serving because you've been deployed to do ministry. Uh, whether it's serving in children's Sunday school or in our DM groups with our student ministries uh, or in the nursery or serving by uh, helping prep the coffee or handing out bulletins. All of these are areas of deployment like soldiers that we've sent out uh, to do the ministry that God has for them. But we also recognize that uh, our job is not just to deploy people to serve us. We know we're called to also be deployed to serve our neighbors and our communities and And even we have the opportunity from time to time, and it's a great opportunity to do so that we deploy those from within, to go to the uttermost parts of the world. I saw the Helwigs here this morning and they've been deployed to serve uh, in in the Philippines. And so far away deployment. And so uh, we're gonna talk about over these uh, next weeks, but even in the the months and and years to come, how we can do a better job in, in greater ways, discover, develop, and deploy disciples for the glory of God and this morning we come uh, to the issue of development. But before we get there, I want to remind you as to why this is of such importance. Why would we take these three weeks at the beginning of a new year of of ministry to stop and talk about these things? Well, there's a couple reasons I want to give you this morning that are not a part of your outline, but to help you understand why this vision is so important. Number one, uh, the reason why we need to have a vision like this is it helps all of our ministries to find their place in what is the heartbeat of God. So if you're serving with the young people, if you're serving in small groups, if you're serving behind the scenes, if yours is more service oriented or more teaching oriented, that you recognize your ministry that you're a part of is something that God is passionate about. The Bible makes it clear that God is passionate about making disciples. And we want you to recognize that what you're doing is something that God himself is passionate about. Number two, we want to do this so that uh, a vision helps bring to every person a sense of reason for their involvement at Village Bible Church. It is really easy as a church to go through the motions, come in on Sunday, do your thing, and then leave and say, what was accomplished? We wanna make sure that everything is intentional about what you're a part of. Every fellowship activity, every small group, every ministry opportunity is to make disciples, whether by discovering, developing, or or deploying them. And so we want people to understand we're not just a place that offers programs or events that have no focus. All of our events, all of our programs, all of our studies will be focused in and funneled through this vision of making disciples. Finally, it brings great clarity to the reason why we serve. Again, you may hand out bulletins. You may work in the kitchen. You may teach kids. You may work with the students. You may sing on the worship team or, or lead a group. It isn't just there. That ministry isn't just there for, to fill a spot or to keep you busy. You are joining with us in the process of making disciples, so that we, at the end of the day, know that we are doing our duty in presenting every member of this church to God in a growing and vibrant relationship with Him. That's what we want to accomplish. And so this series is is a glimpse of, of what God is calling the church to do, what it means to live on mission, not only for the Fox Valley area, but to live on mission so that we may impact the world that we live in. Now last week we learned that we are to discover disciples through evangelism and assimilation, and that that discovery is one not of judgment, but of love. It's an invitation for people to find rest, not to find religion. And I pray that we would see a great number of people as we continue to flesh out this vision who will come to know Jesus Christ and his church as a result of our evangelistic work in the world. But once we discover disciples, what are we to do with them? Notice the next part of our vision statement at the top of your bulletin this morning is a statement. Village Bible Church not only seeks to discover disciples, we learned that last week, but now we seek to develop disciples who are those who diligently learn, passionately love, and purposefully live for the glory of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to grow that. That's not going to happen on its own. You, you cannot wake up, and, and that's just going to come easy for you. And so we need to develop habits. We need to develop disciplines. We need to develop uh, ways of understanding and, and knowing our God more intimately that will allow us to do those three things for his glory and his renown. Now, as people, we love to see things develop. We love our relationships to develop. If you're married or if you have children, you, you, you desire to get to know them, not in a superficial way, but a deep and meaningful way. As a parent, I love to watch my children develop. Even though we're in the kind of the awkward time where, uh, where barriers and boundaries are being pushed, we love to see our children develop from being uh, young men and young women uh, to being full-fledged adults. Uh, We think of development and we think of terms like growth and advancement. That all sounds great. That all sounds good. And while that's definitely true, I think there's an aspect of development that we miss. And I'm going to have to show some of my age to give an illustration to that effect. Uh, When I was younger, uh, you didn't have the opportunity to take as many pictures as you wanted to. On a roll of film, you got 24 or 36 exposure. You remember those days. Some of you don't. But, but here's the thing. When you took a picture, you really meant it, right? It had to be meaningful. You, listen, you didn't take selfies, okay? If, if you wanted a selfie, you looked in the mirror, okay? Because film was expensive, okay? And you say, well, why is film so expensive? Because it took a person to develop it. It took someone who had to take what was on the inside, those pictures that you took that were inside that canister of film. They had to go into a room, into a special process, to develop those pictures so that everybody could enjoy it. I miss those days because that's where you got all your beatings as a kid because you would forget that you made that mean face or that funny face in the picture, and then three weeks later, you've totally forgotten about it, and then your mom would develop it, spend like $10 for the picture only to see your ugly, smug face doing what it was doing. Now we just delete them. There's no cost to it. But here's the thing. With regards to film development... So it is with Christian development, discipleship development. You see, we need to take what's on the inside and develop it so that it can be seen and enjoyed and embraced and and can help all those on the outside. What I mean by that is, just like as we took a picture back in the day, it would go into that canister and it would stay there until someone went through the process of, of exposing that. As Christians, if we are a child of God, we have at some point in our lives made a decision that we are going to follow the teachings and ways of Jesus Christ. But listen, that decision usually is made privately, personally. What I mean by that is it's done between you and God. And what discipleship is, is drawing out and developing something that has happened on the inside and drawing it out and, and, and bringing it out so that others may see it, so others may be impacted by it. We want to develop disciples, people who have made a decision for Christ and draw out, expose, develop what it means to live like Christ, to love like Christ, to serve like Christ, and to proclaim the goodness of Christ in all that we do. But to do that We as a church, we as elders, as leaders, have been given the task of creating an environment that develops people in that way, and it's not always going to be easy because what we have to develop is not only someone to discover Christ, but to develop a deep and close relationship with him so that they can enjoy all of who Christ is and and see all the facets and impacts that a walk with Christ involves. But how do we fulfill it? We've got to find out what the Word of God says about discipleship and apply it. So let's look at Luke chapter 14 this morning and start helping to understand what it means to develop disciples for the glory of God. Jesus preaches a sermon that I think is important in our text that will help us understand not only what it means to be a disciple, but the cost that comes with it. I'm as you stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's look at Luke chapter 14, verses 25. Through uh, 35, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Father God, that's my prayer. He who have ears to hear. This is a hard message. It's not an easy one, and it's not easy because I make it hard. It's not easy because you declare it will be difficult. You know us, and you know our struggle with with counting the cost and with carrying our cross. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts to hear it, and to apply it so that we might develop as followers of Christ, that we may develop the, <clears throat> the pattern of living and that we may develop the, the hunger to follow you in all ways. I pray that this church would be um, active in its development of people so that they might bring glory and honor to you in all that they do. We love you and we give you all the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, so in our passage this morning, we learned that if we are going to be a church that is successful in developing disciples, we need to do some things. There's some things that need to be a part of our DNA. And I want you to notice that when Jesus speaks about discipleship, he speaks with very firm words. These aren't suggestions, these aren't ideas. He, he's not being casual in this. Jesus is speaking in the most serious way possible. And I want you to notice that when we talk about discipleship, we're not talking about something we've created. We're not talking about something we've thought up. We are hearing from the mind and heart of Jesus Christ. This is from Jesus' own mouth. This is the business of Christ. And he came to this earth to seek and to save sinners and to make them disciples of his. But in order for that discipleship to become a reality, we need to recognize a couple of things this morning. First of all, we need to recognize just as Jesus understood that if we're gonna make disciples, then it's gonna involve this church challenging the status quo. It's gonna involve challenging the status quo. Let's look at the text before us. Luke is an author of this gospel, and he always with great detail shares things that maybe might be missed by any other observer. And notice what, Jesus, uh, sorry, what Luke states about Jesus. He says this, great crowds accompanied him. Now just stop there for a moment. This is a fact that Luke is going to say, not once, not twice, but many times. It's a fact that's going to be seen in the other uh, gospel writers as well. Jesus had great crowds assembled around him. And they were there because they liked what Jesus was doing. He was a popular figure. He was a popular teacher. He was one who healed. He exercised demons. He had some great arguments with the Pharisees. And who didn't like to come and see someone argue with the Pharisees? The crowd loved to see what Jesus was doing. This crowd was immense, no less at times than thousands in number, and they loved to see what Jesus was doing. They wanted to be in a crowd. They wanted to observe all that he had going on. Now, who wouldn't be happy as a preacher to have big crowds, to be able to preach and lead to a growing number of people? I mean, isn't that how we judge churches? I mean, when you drive by a church, it's maybe a little small A-frame church, some brick on the walls, and, and uh, maybe a little sign, and a parking lot maybe holds a couple dozen uh, cars, and we assume right away, well, that church is behind the times. That church is missing it. That church isn't getting the job done. But then we drive by one of the major intersections or major roadways in our, in our area, and we see a great big church, acres of parking, big signs, everything looks cutting edge. Uh, Just uh, architecture is amazing, something to be grasped. And right away we say, when we see that, they must be doing something right. They must have a corner on the truth. I mean, why would all those people go to that church if it wasn't something to be held? You see, we fall into a problem. And the problem is is we assume that with size comes health. With size comes truth. With a lot of fancy things comes the corner of what we should be doing, and we judge churches based on that. A large church means that things are going well. So we see big buildings, big budgets, big attendance roles, and we assume that in those places, everything is going as it should. So why wouldn't pastors and churches not want great crowds to accompany them? Here, Jesus, the quintessential pastor, knew that he attracted people. But listen, he knew something about the people who were attracted to him, that they were attracted for all the wrong reasons. And what does he do? He challenges it. He challenges the crowd. You see, there's a tendency as human beings, as pastors, to embrace the crowds. This is a battle that I struggle with all the time. As as our church has grown, it is easy for me to embrace and say, well, well, I must be doing something right because a lot more people are coming than when I first started. So there's my stamp of approval. But what Jesus reminds us is is that uh, real ministry is not found in numbers but in changed lives. Numerous times Jesus preaches what we call Operation Crowd Reduction sermons here. One of the best parts of the Bible that I just love as a preacher is Jesus in John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 has an incredible moment. This is when things are really taken off for him. We are told that Jesus has 5,000 people listening to him preach. And he goes for a long time. I mean, Jesus preached for hours. So when you get tired of Pastor Tim, let's just remember I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a fraction of what Jesus did. He, he preached so long that, that people said, hey, um, they, they started to hear the collective grumblings of the stomachs of people. And Jesus says, well, that's not good. We've got to feed them, and there's nothing more holy than a preacher who caters, so let's do that. Mm. I'm going to hell. <laughs> and so what does he do? He takes a couple of fishes and some loaves and, and, he, and he starts multiplying them and he feeds the 5,000 and my goodness, the 5,000 are clamoring. This guy doesn't just preach, he cooks good food. This is amazing. We're going to come back for more. And so they come back the next day. What are you going to do for us now, Jesus. We've come for you to fill our bellies. It's about us, you know. What trick are you gonna do? Show us that example of power. You know, wow us with your oratorical skills. You you know, do something for us. We're here for the show. And Jesus in John chapter six says, hey, all right. You wanna hang with me? You wanna follow me? You gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. Okay, I don't think so, Jesus. Wait a minute, where's the food? Where's the buffet line? Where's the pyrotechnics, Jesus? We were here yesterday. We saw it. And people became enamored with the show Jesus instead of the Savior Jesus. They got enamored with with the leader who who did everything for them, if you will, who excited them instead of the leader who they were called to follow. And so Jesus says, hey, you're going to have to take all of me. You're going to have to eat, if you will, all of me. You can't have part of me that, that makes you feel good. You can't have part of me that, that makes you uh, filled, filling your bellies. You have to take the one uh, that's gonna cost you deeply. And we are told that, and, and remember, when they counted people back in the day, they counted men, so that 5,000 men probably was closer to 20,000 people. I mean, it's a megachurch at that point. And Jesus has a megachurch for one day because when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, the Bible says, and the crowds left him. They left him. 10%? Nope. 20%? Nope. Half? Nope. All of them but 12. And the disciples look at him And Jesus says, and the disciples are thinking, you know what, I'm not sure we bought into the right thing here. I'm not sure we should do it. In John chapter 6, Jesus asks the question because he knows they're thinking it. Are you going to leave me also? Am I going to be by myself here? To which the disciples, by the power of the Holy Spirit, say, no, where would we go? You have the words of life. You see, Jesus preached a sermon to the crowd so that he could have time with the 12. Does that make sense? He scares off the crowd so he can really get to the ministry of ministering to his disciples. Churches have it all messed up. We preach to the crowd so that we can keep the crowd. We lower our message so that the thousands will stay. And Jesus shows us, listen, that he is not one who is going to live for the crowds. Listen, he challenges the crowd of consumers so that they might become committed contributors. He preaches against the crowd. He says, Yay, you can't hang around with me. Three times in our passage this morning, Jesus will say, You cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, Jesus who loves the world. Wait a minute, Jesus who says, all come to me. Jesus, this one, yes, who says all that, says there are conditions to your coming. And the condition is you cannot live for self and have me as your Savior. You cannot be my disciple. Again, three times he's going to say that. Sadly, though, in so many American churches, our pews and seats are filled with consumers not disciples. They seek Jesus for the things that he will do for them. They pursue, uh, these people pursue churches to meet their needs, their preferences, the churches that will make them happy. And we label those churches as innovative for making people comfortable in their place of consumer Christianity. And here's consumer Christianity. You are always right, because it is about your ideals' desires. But Jesus was different, he wasn't fooled by large crowds. He knew that people followed him for superficial reasons. He knew even amongst his 12, there was one, Judas, who was not a true follower of his. He knew it, he was aware of it, and he, like a surgeon, pinpoints the cancer and and extracts it. And he recognizes there are people there because it's just the exciting place to be. And in our text, if it ended there that Jesus had large crowds accompanying him, we might think that that's how we uh, know our work is approved by God. If it's big, it must be right. But Jesus sought to make the consumers very uncomfortable. And Jesus doesn't mince any words. He says, listen, you're not going to like my sermon if you're not willing to do what I say. So here's the problem. In a growing church like this, it's hard to distinguish between the crowd and the committed. But here's one way to do it. Preach sermons that make people uncomfortable. Who uncomfortable? The crowd. You see, a person in the crowd is one who speaks from a selfish perspective. What is Christ going to do for me? What has that church got for me? See, when you're the consumer, you're the experts as to what ministry should look like. If you're the standard, you will leave this place today. Listen, you will leave this place today and you will say, you know what? It would have been more worshipful had they sang these songs. If our leader in our class would have done this, then, then, then maybe my kids might have enjoyed it more. If, if they would serve a different kind of coffee, then you know, I might be a little more excited. If they offered this thing or that thing, then, then maybe it was there. If we didn't have to sit on pews and maybe had those theater chairs, I be, might be more attentive. When you're thinking and, and processing church in that way, you're processing it as a consumer, not as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because here's why. When Christ becomes the standard, all of that gets pushed away. It's about Christ. It's about his work. It's about what I'm called to do. My perspectives, my prerogatives decrease so that Christ may increase. So what do we take away from this, this first statement? Now, great crowds accompanied him as a church. Here's, point number, here's, here's takeaway number one. Large, church, large numbers are not inherently a bad thing. Our church has almost tripled in size in the last 10 years. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. But large numbers, listen, are a great cover for people who have little desire to live for Christ. You can hang around. You can be anonymous. So listen, one one takeaway, we will never die. We will never die. God is our witness and God is our help. We will never die on a hill of making the church larger for numbers' sake. Second, and this, one's, this one, is. You, some will gulp at this. We're going to make it really hard for you just to hang around here. Okay? So, okay, so listen, listen, don't need to clap it. I hate when we clap because Jesus gets the claps. That's it, okay? Okay, I get it. Thank you for that. We, we, we don't want people to be comfortable, okay? Listen. Comfortability is the greatest enemy to Christianity. Now I'm not saying that there's no joy in Christianity. I'm not saying that there's not times where we celebrate, absolutely. We'll talk about that in a moment. But listen, Jesus is talking, listen to what he says. Carry your cross. Do you know what a cross was? It was an execution device. So if Jesus is using that terminology, do you think we're doing it right at churches when we make people feel comfortable where they're at? We are selling them the lies of the devil. Now you say, Tim, you know, are you being hard on churches? Let me, let me help you out. One of the largest megachurches in the country 10 years ago had an epiphany moment, and they'll remain nameless, okay, because I don't want you to, to evaluate based on the name because many of you will know it. But they came to a come-to-Jesus moment, attracting thousands on a weekend, thousands. They were one of the most innovative churches in the world. And they came to a point, God bless them, they came to a point and they said, hey, we need to evaluate because what we thought would be the end result isn't happening. And 10 years ago, they embarked on the largest single survey that a church has ever done in, in human history that anyone's aware of. And they asked the question, based on our premise of doing ministry that focuses the church experience, this is from their own words, the church experience, on making all comfortable and making Christ accessible in very practical ways to our attendees, while focusing in on the felt needs of the individual instead of calls of greater commitment, what did our ministry accomplish? Here's what they said. It enabled us to build bigger buildings, have greater programs, but it failed at making any real change in the lives of people for their God. Not my words, theirs. To which the senior pastor of that church, God bless him, got up and said, we have failed you. We have to be about making disciples and there's nothing comfortable about that. So, we've got to battle Satan's ploys That sitting on the sidelines as a Christian, going about your, your lives as if Christ doesn't matter, is unbiblical. And it will rob you of all joy that God desires for you to have, but challenging people is one thing. We could challenge, 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 get all the amens, all the hand claps, all of that. I mean, that, we could get there, but what do we have to do? As a church, notice, Jesus moves on. He doesn't just say, I hate crowds, get out of here. But what he says is, okay, for those that are serious, for those that, that want to be with me, here's what it involves. And so notice, a church must connect people with discipleship's c- commands. It's demands, what is is it demanding? Notice, Jesus garners the attention of the crowd. He moves to the core of what discipleship is. And in one word, he sums up discipleship, you have to count the cost. It's gonna cost you. In verse 28, he says you gotta count this cost. Now if there's anything that irritates me as a pastor is the idea that, that has become so pronounced in our evangelical circles is that you can be a Christian and do nothing to show it. I read an article this this such week in the Huffington Post where the author titles his article, I am a Christian but disagree with most of what Jesus taught. Okay? And we laugh, we scoff, we say, oh, how could you say that? And this is how many of us live each and every day. I'm a Christian but I'm not sure about this whole discipleship thing. I'm a Christian, but I don't really need to go to church. I'm a Christian, and I don't need to to look at how I give and how I talk and how I walk with other people. Let me tell you something. That kind of thinking, that kind of thinking, I can can be a Christian and not do what Jesus taught. It comes from the Greek word that will sum it all up. It's called skoubalon. Paul uses it. It literally means poop. That's what it is. Paul says, hey, this is all rubbish, he says in Philippians. And Jesus tells us in three verses in our text, you cannot say you're one of my disciples. You cannot be one of my disciples and not do what I say. You can't. And before you start saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm not a disciple. Listen, the New Testament never makes that dichotomy. You're a Christian, you're a disciple. It's one and the same. It's one and the same. So notice the things he's talking about. Jesus makes it clear, hey, you're gonna, you, wanna, you wanna be with me? You wanna enjoy the, the blessing that comes with walking and living with me? Then it's gonna involve carrying your cross, and that's gonna involve pain and suffering and humiliation at times. It's gonna cost you some things. So notice, he starts doing, hey, you got to evaluate some things. So evaluate your worship. Verse 26. Verse 26, evaluate your worship. He says in verse 26, hey, if my relationship with you is second to any earthly relationship, you've got a problem. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even if he doesn't hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That had to have shocked people. Wait a minute, you want me to hate the lady that's standing next to me? She's my wife. You want me to hate my kids? Jesus is using a Hebraic um, use of exaggeration. And it's exaggeration for a point. What he's saying is, is that I come first. I'm number one. And I should come in such a pronounced way that I'm number one that anybody who looks at how you respond to me might think that I hate everybody else. What he's saying is, is I am the preference, I am the priority, I am the focus. Now you say, as a Christian, wait a minute, is Jesus literally meaning that? No, Jesus is not literally saying we must hate because to do so would mean to contradict everything he says. We're called to love our spouses, we're called to love our children, we're called to have familial love for our families, we're called to love our neighbors, our enemies. What Jesus is saying is, I want to be number one. And if I am number one, those who are two, three, four, and five will be loved even better. Let me tell you something. Amanda doesn't want to be number one in my life because if she's number one, I'm going to fail her. But when Christ is number one, and I follow Christ, and, and I'm a, a husband as Christ was a husband to the church, that I'm willing, as Ephesians 5 says, to lay down my life, to do all that I must as Christ loves his church, I will love my wife, then Amanda's gonna love being number two. And my children will love being number three. And the church will love being number four. But it's when we start elevating relationships, or even our relationship with ourselves, you see some of us struggle with being a part of a church and being a disciple because we can't get ourselves off of the pedestal. Our love for ourselves, our love for our comfort is so number one that anybody who tries to knock that off the uh, pedestal will make us angry. Who are we worshiping? Is it earthly relationships? Discipleship will impact Jesus needs to be number one. How about in our work? Jesus moves on from worship to the work of a disciple in verses 28 and 29. Notice what he says. He says, whoever... Uh, or for which of you desiring to build, verse 28, a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying the man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus then speaks about a guy who's building a tower. And here's two things that I know about building. Number one, it rarely gets done on time. And number two, it almost always goes over budget, right? And here's the thing. There's great fun in dreaming. The best part of the building project is the, is the designing of it on the piece of paper, right? Here's why, it doesn't cost you anything. That's why some of you are given to watching home and garden television because you can dream all these dreams and then go back to where you lived and, and it's wonderful. Because anybody can dream, it doesn't cost you anything. But here's the problem, what Jesus is trying to remind us is is if we're gonna be his disciples, there's a long run to it. What I mean by that is, uh, you need to make sure that you understand the hidden cost of construction. When we built our our new addition uh, onto the church here, uh, we were young and dumb, okay? Some of you are Amen, and in your hearts, I know. As elders, we thought we could build a building as cheaply as possible, but, but still getting as much bang for our buck. And the city kept coming and adding cost and adding cost, and we'd have to come back to the congregation and say, it's gonna cost us more, it's gonna cost us more. Well, why? Because there are hidden costs. And we would have to ask the people over and over again, are we willing to pay that cost for the needed building that we, we have need for? And we had to count the cost, because there are hidden costs in buildings. So there are hidden costs in the Christian life. You see, it's easy for us to say, I'm all for Jesus in the worship center. I'm all for Jesus when the preacher says, come on down. I'm all for Jesus when we're playing the hymn for the 8,000th time and tears are rolling down. It's easy to follow Jesus. But the the unseen costs are on that random Wednesday when God says, but you can't live that way anymore, Tim. Tim, when when I say I demand all, I I demand your time, your talents, your treasures, your testimony. I demand all that, But, but God, I didn't see that in the design. I didn't see that I was gonna have to live differently. Say no to certain entertainments, say no to certain things. I didn't know I was gonna have to do that. And what Jesus says is, if you're gonna be my disciples, recognize, listen, there's gonna be hidden costs. Not because I'm hiding them from you, they're hidden costs because you've not thought this all the way through. And so that's why, listen, we are very cautious about saying, hey, who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Just come forward, it's nice and easy, you don't have to leave your pew, you don't have to do anything, just between you and God. And there is some truth to that, but we handicap people because we say that there's nothing they have to worry about after that. You've got your insurance, you've got your get out of jail free card, you're all good. And then when it gets tough, they say, wait a minute, this isn't what I've signed up for. Jesus says, it's going to be hard. Count the cost. Notice he goes and uses a war analogy. He says, okay, a general's heading into battle. He's gotta count the cost. Do I have enough to win the war? And if I don't, I need to make a different direction. I need to go a different way. This reminds us of a couple truths surrounding discipleship. Number one, we have to ask the question, do I have what I need to accomplish a task before me? A general has to ask, can I win this war? A disciple will answer that question with a resounding no. I can't. I can't do it without you, God. So I'm giving my life to you. I'm, I'm placing myself under your authority because I can't win this war on my own. I need you in my life. Second, Am I willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the task? The general says, okay, I'm gonna go, and my job isn't to go and shake hands with the other guys. It is to go and decimate them. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to shed blood for what I'm going to fight over. And if I'm not, I better make a peace treaty because it's not worth it. Here's the question, as a disciple, am I willing, the blood, sweat, and tears that it will cost me, as a disciple, am I willing to do it? Because if I'm not, I better make some other arrangements. It's not worth it. Third, if I'm not able to do the task, then I need to recognize it's an either all-in or all-out proposition. What I mean by that is either I'm going to war or I'm signing a peace treaty. Those two are diametrically opposed from one another. I'm gonna attack or I'm going to appease and and, and find a way to to be able to write up the treaty. And so we've gotta ask the question this morning, am I in or am I out? Am I willing to go to war for the sake of Christ and his kingdom or am I going to sit the sidelines, sign a treaty with the devil and say, you know what, it's not worth the battle. I'll just sign it, I'll count the cost, and see that I am not seeing the reason to go to war. Finally, he talks about our witness. In verses 34 and 35, he talks about salt. Salt is good, it was good for flavoring, it was good for preserving, it was good for disinfecting. So he says salt is good in verse 34, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If it's of no use either for the soil then or for the manure pile, it's thrown away. So he says, okay, what about your witness? What he's saying is is if salt doesn't do what it's intended to do, then it's of no value. I know we don't use salt, we've got refrigeration, so we don't use salt like we used to, But, but here's the thing, have you ever chewed a piece of gum and it's lost its flavoring? What do you do with it? Throw it away. Why? Why are you wasting your time, your energy? You're not burning any calories chewing gum. It's a waste. If it doesn't have flavor, if it doesn't have the reason why it's there, you get rid of it. A disciple who is not living a discipled life is worthless. And so if you're here and you're just going through the motions and you think you're adding some value, if you will, to to what you're doing, if this is just simply a religious activity... You're doing it for the looks. You're wasting your time. It's no good for you, it's no good for others. So what do we do? As a church, we're going to help you day in and day out count the cost. We're gonna remind you that the Christian life, while it isn't easy, is the greatest place a person can find himself. That being a disciple at times will have you second guessing because it's hard work, That endurance is where we find joy. So how do we do it? Very quick point, it's gonna move fast, so have your pens ready. We're gonna commit to a particular kind of ministry. How do we make these disciples? Now we know what a disciple is, how do we make them? The same way Jesus did. The goal of Village Bible Church is to follow the pattern that Jesus did. And he had a threefold pattern. Number one, that pattern involved interaction. Jesus spent three and a half years with his disciples. He walked with them. He talked with them. He lived life with them. He hung out with them in the morning, in the lunchtime, and in the evening. They had good times together. They had hard times together. They lived in community with one another. And listen, it was interaction that was intimate. It was an intimate interaction. They loved one another. They cared for one another. Yeah, they had spats and they had issues. They wanted to know who would be on who's right and who's left in the kingdom. They had struggles, but they loved one another. And that community was interactive where they lived life together, they did life together, and it was intimate. And Village Bible Church needs to be a church where we create an environment, not for people to come and go out of services, but where people, every man, woman, and child sees the essentialness to our walk with God being done in community with other believers. And so everything that we do is so that we can live life together. We fellowship together so that we can show one another what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. We we gather together in small groups. We, We do all of this so that we might help one another in developing one another to be more like Christ. Number two, this ministry is a ministry of instruction. Jesus taught them. He spent lots of time teaching them on a myriad of issues. He taught them about their relationship with God. He taught them about their relationship with one another. He taught them about their relationship with their enemies, their families, strangers, their wives, their children, on all types of subjects. He he spoke on their relationship with themselves and their battle with sin. Jesus taught them how to follow God in the good times. He taught them how to follow God in the bad times. Jesus spoke to their questions. He challenged their dysfunctions. He addressed their hatreds and made their loves even greater through His teaching. As a church, we must be committed to this type of teaching ministry where we teach on all sorts of issues. That we're not, we're not f- afraid of teaching the hard stuff. That we're not so angry that we don't teach on the good stuff that we love and that we do so in teaching in all ways. Jesus taught in large crowds, he taught in small groups. Jesus taught one on one. We need to teach in all these ways. And I want you to recognize that the vast majority of his teaching was done in a group of 12 and that's why we think small groups are so important to this church. Because it's in that small group of people where Christ can uniquely speak and we can help one another understand what Christ is calling us to. So it's interaction, it's instruction, it's also imitation. Jesus came to this earth, he put on flesh, made his dwelling among us. Why? So we could see what God looks like with flesh on? No, so that we might know how we ought to live as flesh and blood. So Jesus shows us with a perfect example what it means to be obedient even to death on a cross. What it means when you need to obey when you don't feel like it, as Jesus did in the garden. When his humanity cried out, no, I don't wanna die. That's not what a live human being would ever say. Jesus shows us, and he says, imitate my example. We imitate Christ so that we might help others see who Christ is. The elder's job is to be of men who we can imitate so that as we imitate them, we might imitate Christ. Not perfectly. Remember, your elders are not your savior. Your your, your mentors aren't the ones who went to the cross to die for you. We have one savior, Jesus Christ, and, and our job in our finite infallibility is to imitate Christ. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not perfectly, but to be examples. And this is seen in the New Testament over and over again, the admonition for older men and older women as they imitate Christ, that they might help younger men and women to know what it means to be godly and what it means to live upright lives. And so our discipleship is happening even when we're not teaching So fathers, your discipleship of your children is happening as they're watching you. Hopefully they're seeing Christ in all that you do. Moms, the same thing. Elders, are they seeing Christ? And yes, we'll fail at times, but are we living such lives that we could say, hey, if you imitate me, you're gonna draw closer to God. Discipleship is about imitation. When a student is fully taught, he will become like his teacher, Jesus said. So what do we do in this journey? It's not an easy one. Well, we celebrate his progress along the way. Why would we buy into this? This is so much less fun than just letting people be comfortable and building big ministries and all of that. So what do we do? Why would we celebrate? We celebrate because we see the advancements that the gospel makes in people's lives. And we recognize a couple things that God is doing in our midst. If we pursue this vision of discipleship, here's a couple things that God says we can celebrate. Number one, we can celebrate the fact that God will always complete what he started. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to the day of completion. If you give yourself to this thing called discipleship, God says that your toiling will not be done in vain. He'll complete it. He'll finish it. That when you stand before Jesus, he'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's faithful to complete it. Number two, as a church, why would we give ourselves a vision of discipleship? Because God gives us all we need to support this vision. He's giving us all that we need. God says that we have all that we need for life and godliness. And so discipleship is life and godliness together, following Christ. And God says you've got all that you need. So we don't have to go buy a million-dollar project to uh, be able to accomplish this. We don't need to have uh, all the the best uh, staff and preachers in the world to make this happen. God says normal, average, everyday people have exactly what they need. Village Bible Church, you have all that you need to accomplish this task of making disciples. You can do it. So we're not in lack. We have all that we need. And finally, God has shown us that this strategy works. 2,000 years ago, Jesus worked with a group of men. And that group of men started working with other people And that group of people started working with other people. And those people, others and others and others and others, and we're just to the Dark Ages at that point. And then still others and others and others. We pass through the Reformation. And others and others. And then all of a sudden, we've got America here. And others and others and others. And we have Western expansion until we get to this little town called Sugar Grove, just beyond bliss. Okay? And 2,000 years later, from when Jesus uttered these words... His discipleship is working because this place is filled with people who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. You think it works? It works. And so why would the church focus in on anything else except for the strategy that works? Discipleship. It's worked. The same discipleship that God's calling you to is what he was calling the apostle Peter to. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. And if you do that, God says there is blessing, there is joy, that while the road is hard, there's no greater place than to be a disciple of Jesus. Will you join us in that journey? Will you take that cross up and count the cost? We want you to be a part of it. Because when we do that, that's when God changes not only our lives, but the lives of the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word, and Lord, these are hard things, but I pray today that we would not get up and walk away and, and, and verify that we were a part of the crowd, but like the disciples, we would say, where are we to go? Who are we to turn to other than you? Lord, you have the words of life, and, and I pray by the Spirit's power today that, that every one of us would say, I don't care what it means, Lord, your words are life to us. We will do it. Lord, I know that in my own life there are areas that I have not counted the cost. And in the presence of these wonderful people, I confess that there are areas of casual Christianity in my life that have to be extracted. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to do your work in me, finish the work that you've started. Lord, I pray that for our people because you created us for an intimate relationship with you and you know that in that life of intimacy is all sorts of joys, all sorts of blessing that we forfeit in disobedience. And because you've created us and know us, you know what's best. And you say discipleship is it. So Lord, I pray that we would count the cost and we would begin this day anew to carry the cross that you've called us to, no matter what cost may come. Lord, make us a church that is passionate about this, It may not make us the biggest church. It may not make us the flashiest church, but Lord, it will make us a healthy church, and that's what we desire. So empower your elders here. Fill them with your spirit. Give them wisdom so that they might not turn from the left or the right of this, but they may do so for your glory and your name's sake. We love you, Jesus. And because you're passionate about this, we want to be passionate about it. So empower us this week to start this discipleship journey with you. Now send us forth now, Lord, in fellowship. Let us interact and, and show love to one another as we spur one another on towards love and good deeds so that we might see Jesus in others, so that others might see Jesus in us. Thank you, Christ, for all that you've done, for the cross you carried so that we might have eternal life in you. Now send us forth in peace, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.